If you want to revel in the wonder of the natural world, while still asking tough questions about our place in that world, I'd like to tell you about a podcast you might enjoy. It's called Outside In. Hosted by Sam Evans-Brown, Outside In tackles a broad range of subjects, from the environmental movement's troubling links to the eugenics movement, to the fraught history between hydropower development and indigenous rights in Canada. Outside In tries to capture the joy that attracts so many of us to the outdoors in the first place. The show has taken listeners under the ice of frozen lakes, to peat bogs in the Arctic, and up close to patches of moss in your own backyard. Outside In features deeply investigated stories and the deliberately goofy. They've staged debates over which is the best animal and the best fruit, and they've tried to identify the fastest way a human could travel before the internal combustion engine. Outside In makes you think and makes you laugh. You can find Outside In in your favorite podcast app and at outsideinradio.org. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. If you're new to Out There, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Just for you, I've put together a playlist of some of our favorite episodes of all time. The Best of Out There playlist is a compilation of stories that have won awards and timeless classics that listeners have loved. To listen to these favorites, head to our website, outtherepodcast.com, and click on the Best of Out There playlist. Again, that's outtherepodcast.com. And now, let's get started. Back in 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and called for the area to be protected from future development. Leave it as it is, he said. You cannot improve on it. Roosevelt went on to preserve 230 million acres of American land, which was unprecedented. Today's guest is the author of a book called Leave It As It Is. The book is about Roosevelt's novel brand of environmentalism and about the lessons we can take from that and apply to our world today. I have to admit, when the publisher first reached out to me about this book, I was skeptical. I was worried it would be yet another book written by a white man singing the praises of another white man. I worried that it would celebrate Roosevelt's environmental achievements without acknowledging that many of those achievements came at the expense of indigenous communities. But when I started to read David Gessner's book, I realized that he wasn't about to whitewash Roosevelt's dark past. He was going to praise Teddy for his groundbreaking accomplishments, but he was going to be equally harsh in his criticism about the genocide that made those accomplishments possible. And while he makes the case that we need a new Roosevelt who will fight just as fiercely as Teddy did for public lands, he also calls for that fight to look very different than it did back in the early 1900s. David Gessner joins us today to talk about his book and about what we and President-elect Biden might learn from the accomplishments 
and atrocities of the past. So in researching this book, you took a road trip of your own, kind of retracing Teddy's steps. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I thought that would be, you know, as somebody who writes about place and thinks about place, I thought I've got to go to the places that mattered to him to be able to understand how, how we felt. And so I planned out this kind of massive road trip where I would head, I live in North Carolina and I'd head up the East Coast to uh, Washington, D.C., then on to Roosevelt's house on Long Island, up to Harvard, where Roosevelt went to school, and then head west. And I brought along my nephew, Noah, who had just graduated from college at the University of North Carolina, Asheville. And Noah kind of provides like a foil in the book, because whereas I'm listening on tape while we're driving to Roosevelt's speeches and books on tape about Roosevelt, He's kind of rolling his eyes. He's tired of this guy. And he said to me, you know, if I ever hear the phrase manly vigor again, I'm going to jump out of the car. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so he's a good, you know, good young person's perspective on the crazy aspect of Roosevelt. But we head out and we head to the Badlands. And he, he wrote a note to me after the trip that said, you know, the trip through the Midwest was somewhat boring. But then we hit the crazy roller coaster and down into these wild shapes and I knew we were in the West and how exciting it was for him. And the first morning we woke up and there were buffalo on the grass outside of our tent and that pretty much did it for him. Now he, you know, it was, a, it was his first time crossing the Mississippi and seeing the West. And I of course thought back to my own, I traveled West after, right after college, but my big journey West uh, to live came when I was 30. And I just experienced testicular cancer living in my old hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. And I would joke, and you know, I said in my journal, I don't know what's worse, Worcester or, or cancer. But when I got better, when I, after I had radiation, I headed out to go to grad school in Colorado. And it was just the classic kind of like being reborn, you know, after, as you're heading out to the mountains. And I slowly got healthy out there again, and I really um, reveled in it. So I compare that to an even grander example of that, which is Roosevelt, when he was 24, had this brutal stretch where he, his mother dies, and within 24 hours, his, his young wife dies. And he quits politics, and he heads out to the Badlands, and he kind of reinvents himself. He'd been kind of a effete Manhattanite, you know, um, and kind of a fop, actually, a fancy dresser. And suddenly he's this cowboy in the West and he, you know, and his chest gets more burly and he gets stronger and he works with, um, he works on the ranch and he'll stay in, he'll stay in the saddle for 24 hours at one point. And so he kind of recreates himself as this Western figure. And he always, he always said, I never would have been president had I not gone West. So one of the, one thing about the book is it, it talks about the way that movement from East to West is part of the national psyche. You describe Roosevelt's accomplishments in the environmental realm as groundbreaking, um, as, as in he did things that were quite literally unheard of. Um, can you give us an example of one of those things? 
Well, I mean, he, he, he had the good fortune of having the Antiquities Act handed to him in 1906, which meant he could save landscapes that, that no one had saved before. He, it didn't have to be a national park. It didn't have to go through Congress. So what he did, for example, was take an act that was originally thought to be used for um, antiquities, that is, Anasazi ruins and um, Native American uh, dwellings, and he expanded it to the point where it was saving whole landscapes around there, the most dramatic being Grand Canyon itself. He was very frustrated that people hadn't made it a national park, so he, in one fell swoop, declared it a national monument, almost a million acres, and what happened was uh, that was the stepping stone to becoming a national park. So he, he, he would save large swaths of land, and he would think in terms of ecosystems in a way nobody really did. Uh, and it partly came from his, the fact he was a hunter, and he, you know, he liked having big carnivores in the world, but it also came from his training when he was young as a naturalist. Um, you know, when he was 14 years old, he didn't want to be president, he didn't want to be a soldier. He wanted to be like his hero, Charles Darwin, a working naturalist. You know, we think of parks as for human beings and as places where we derive pleasure, but he was able to think kind of beyond the human, beyond the anthropocentric, and think of wild places in a way that was more like what the way John Muir or Thoreau would think about those places than a politician would usually think about them. Mm. about the title, Leave It As It Is? Well, um, I found that phrase to be coming very handy lately. I think that... <laughs> you use it a lot uh, in the yeah, book. <laughs> I think you... Uh, I, um, I used it when they tried to change the title of the book at Simon & Schuster, and I wrote them a nice, long, polite letter, but it ended, Leave It As It Is, which they did. But it comes... <laughs> it originally comes from uh, what Roosevelt said when he was standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon during his 1903 tour of the country, the first real uh, campaign tour by a sitting president, a whistle-stop campaign where he traveled 16,000 miles crisscrossing the country in a train. And he wrote this speech before he'd ever seen the Grand Canyon. And he arrived at the Grand Canyon in the morning, went up uh, on on horseback to check it out, really impressed the people he was with by naming the birds and, and, and plants, and then got to the edge and saw the giant purple bruise that is the Grand Canyon. And I like to think he revised the speech he'd written at that point. Um, and he came back at noon, and he and standing at the edge of the canyon with a crowd, he was, he was actually up on a hotel balcony, he gave this great speech that I say is comparable to the Gettysburg Address, but for the environment, where he talks about saving the land for your children's children, which has become a cliche, but wasn't a cliche then, and leaving it as it is, not building a hotel there, not marring it in any way, but saving the land for itself. And it's a real, you know, it's a real ringing speech. And uh, as I said in the book, he's doing something that people don't get. Like, what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna profit from this? No, we're gonna leave it as it is. And to me, that's the the crux of it, and that's why I chose it as the title of the book. Uh, at some time, at some points in time, we have to just leave things alone. 
One of the things that you talk about in the book, though, is that this phrase, leave it as it is, is a little problematic, um, maybe more than a little problematic, because it implies that these wild places that we're saving were empty and that no humans lived there. Um, but as you point out uh, quite often in your book, that was not true. Um, so what was the reality? Right, we have to question what as it is was, right? Um, and what it was was, a, you know, the, the country was populated by indigenous people and uh, a lot of the lands that became parks had been at the very least, hunting grounds and uh, and sometimes homelands of native people. So that twists it around to a degree and, and has to be looked at, you know, squarely in the eye, um, which I try to do. You know, I try to not make any excuses for Roosevelt. I say if, if he deserves credit for being prescient and ahead of his time in terms of environmental issues, he deserves to be criticized and called out where he was actually not just of his time, but he was behind his time. He was a believer in manifest destiny, which at that point was half a century old that he, when he was president. And so, you know, he just, he thought Native people were in the way um, as, as we charged West. So when he was saving these lands, sometimes they weren't really his to save. So I call him out on that and I don't make excuses for that. On the other hand, the reality is it never was going to be a choice between letting it remain, you know, a native paradise uh, versus a park. It was a park versus a developed, you know, it would probably be condos now, right? And it would have been settlers' homes then. So there, it's a little more complicated than some of the very left-leaning uh, critics of this and, and, and understandably Native people's criticisms of, of the creation of parks and national monuments. Yes, there's very valid reason to criticize it. On the other hand, parks are an amazing thing that, that stopped us from just paving over the, the whole of it, you know, developing it at all. So Wall Stegner said that national parks were America's best idea, but I say... Maybe they're not our best idea, but they're still a pretty good one. And the focus of the book really is on Bears Ears National Monument, which is the first time five tribes, five um, native tribes, used the Antiquities Act, which is how you create a national monument, to save a landscape that was sacred ground. So it's kind of a maturing and a better version of this, you know, park and national monument impulse. I say that Roosevelt created the rough draft and there are flaws in that draft and that we have the possibility now, and particularly now that we have a new president coming in, where we can take the best parts of that old ideal and use them in a new way that's more inclusive and that's more... Um, Interactive, like it's uh, one of the things about Bears Ears is the tribes want to use it for ceremony, for plant gathering. So it's less of a tourist, uh, you know, tourist focused uh, enterprise than it is uh, an inclusive, larger enterprise. Well, and this was going to be one of my questions um, because you advocate very strongly in your book for saving wild spaces and you also strongly criticize 
preserving these wild spaces at the expense of indigenous people. So how do we square those two? How do we move forward with what does environmentalism need to look like in order to not just protect wilderness, but also to be fair and just and equitable? Well, I'll, I'll focus in. I've talked about it somewhat vaguely, but I'll focus in on Bears Ears as an example since I do in the book. There's a cliche that it was kind of just thrown together at the last minute as Obama was leaving office. Uh, that's not true. Um, the, uh, the tribes uh, led by the Navajo, the Hopi, the Ute, the Zuni, and the Ute Mountain Ute had been studying this landscape in southeast Utah and thinking about ways to preserve it. It had historically, thousand, for thousands of years, it was a meeting ground and a trading ground right below the Bears Ears, which are these two buttes that are um, where, with, a, with a meadow between them. It was historically um, this great meeting place of tribes. It also was filled chock full of Anasazi dwellings. So it's this incredibly rich place. It's actually kind of the definition of the Antiquities Act. Um, it embodies the Antiquities Act. So the tribes got together and environmental groups were also involved and they laid out this plan and they wrote this amazing proposal that reads like a prose poem about the phenology of bear's ears and phenology is when things bud and when, when, uh, when things flower and when birds return. So they write this thing and they put it together and they bring it to Washington, and lo and behold, miraculously, it finds its way through. Now, it wasn't perfect, because originally, the tribes were supposed to have more power in directing the National Monument, and that kind of got stripped away, and they became more advisory. So that's not perfect, but it was a step in the right direction. And when I started to work on this book, the first person I interviewed was Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, um, who was a Ute Mountain Ute and a member of the Bears Ears Commission. And she said to me, look, we're not trying to relive historical trauma here. Uh, we're not trying to say, give us our land back. We're trying to take a tool of the United States government and use it in a new way. And the new way was for the benefit of the native people in that area. And so there's an example of how you might um, how you might use the old tools in new ways, how you might create a new draft of, of the old idea. We'll talk about what all this means moving forward, both for us as readers and for the incoming Biden administration in a moment. But first... Have you ever wanted to live in a mountain paradise? Now is a great time to move to the location of your dreams. COVID-19 has changed how the world does business, and many of us are working remotely. If you are too, why not live in the mountain town you've always dreamed of? One of our sponsors for this episode is the Tourism and Prosperity Partnership in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. They're here to tell you that the Gunnison Valley is a wonderful place to live. It's nestled between four spectacular mountain ranges, it has over 750 miles of biking and hiking trails, plus there's world-class skiing in Crested Butte, and an award-winning school system. Imagine waking up in your ultimate destination every morning. No traffic, 
no crowded trails, no more wishing you lived in the mountains. Work where you play in the Gunnison Valley. To start living your dream, visit icelab.co. That's icelab.co. Gunnison Valley, welcome home. Support also comes from BetterHelp. 2020 has been a tough year in so many ways. So it's completely understandable if you've been having a lot of big feelings. Sometimes those feelings are too much to handle on your own. That's where BetterHelp comes in. They offer professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in everything from anxiety and depression to grief and anger to LGBT issues and family conflict. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions and match you with a counselor who can meet your specific needs. You can talk to your counselor via phone, video chat, or text. And you can always switch counselors if it's not a good fit. Don't go through this awful year alone. Get the support you need. You deserve to be happy and to achieve your goals. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. And now let's get back to our conversation with David Gessner. So one of the things that you talk about in, uh, in your book is that advances are precarious and that we can institute environmental protections one day, but there's no guarantee that those protections will stay in place um, under future administrations. How do you keep from becoming disillusioned? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I say nothing, you know, it's like you're a beginning and beginner environmentalist if you think something saved forever. There's really no forever, right? I mean, you, you save something and then it gets unsaved, as the example of Bears Ears proves. Um, I guess it's partly to do with this thing that you don't hear environmentalists talk about a lot because so much is policy, which is I spend a lot of time actually out in wild places. And one of the things people don't talk about that much is how fun that is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's really enjoyable to be sitting around a fire having a beer and looking up at the stars. It's really enjoyable to see how much vast space there still is. Uh, at the end of my book, for instance, I hitched a ride with a pilot named Bruce Gordon. Uh, he owns a small plane and he takes environmentalists for flights over land they're trying to save. And I called up and said, are you going? You know, are you, are you going on any flights? Can I hitch a ride? And I took a giant lap of Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, parts of Utah. And part of that flight was super depressing, seeing trees killed by beetle kill or fires, uh, seeing the fracking in Wyoming. But there were vast spaces and long time periods where you'd be going over just trees and mountains and rivers and lakes and you'd realize that the American West still has all this space, this wild space, despite everything. And so that to me is exciting. That kind of is a counterbalance to the dismal 
daily drip of bad Enviro news. Hmm. I'm curious about your shift personally from writing, from being a nature writer to being an advocate. Um, what has that been like? It's sort of this, this change from, from documenting to, to advocacy. I got to say, it's not the most natural fit in the world, but the more I've done it, you know, the more momentum I get. And I see how, I mean, one of the things about Roosevelt as a model is you get to see how he engages different aspects of his personality. This is a guy who could spend a week alone out in, in nature. This is a guy in the middle of the 1903 re-election tour, goes off in Yellowstone on his own, leaving Secret Service behind, leaving everybody behind, and spends a day counting and studying elk. And yet, he's the same person who the next day is giving a rousing speech um, you know, to, to hundreds of people. So... It's about like being able to engage parts of you. Uh, and I guess another kind of charismatic leader, Churchill was very fond of the phrase, a change is as good as a rest. So I really hold close to that, that I don't want to give up my time in the wild. I don't want to give up um, my teaching. I don't want to give up friends. But I do want to engage that part of me that tries to rouse other people to action. What are you hoping readers will take away from your book? Well, that's a good question. It's like, obviously, I'm trying to rally them to the idea of, of public lands, and I'm trying to awaken them to climate change, which sounds obvious enough, right? We, we, have, we heard so many things about climate change, but I still feel like it has not, the fight has not been articulated well because the enemy is so confusing. It's not like, you know, if somebody builds a giant trophy house on a piece of land you love, you hate the trophy house and you're, you know, you rail against that. This is so much more confusing because we're also fighting ourselves and our own excessive habits and our human nature, right? Human nature, it's great to say leave it as it is and I believe in it, but human nature wants more and is hungry for more. You know, I quote my old professor, Red Sonner, we humans are in elsewhere. We're always jumping ahead. How do we control that? You know, how do we control that impulse? Because if we don't, we'll just keep swallowing up the earth. Like a lot of people, I see some small lessons in what's happened during the pandemic in terms of doing with less and with exploring our own backyards and not flying and, and running around as much. So I think that's something I want people to take away. I kind of get toward that. Obviously, I wrote it before the pandemic, but I'm already talking about those kind of Thoreauvian ideals of being happy with less instead of craving more. So there's that. And there's also just kind of the spirit of Roosevelt. I mean, I think we, uh, you know, he said, reading for me is like a disease. You know, he, he read a book a night at one point in his life. He was so hungry to read. And I feel having had a president who doesn't read books as we have recently, in a country that doesn't really read as much anymore, how vital reading can be and how it can change behavior. There's a moment, for instance, uh, that I love um, where Roosevelt has just moved out to the Badlands 
and he's got his ranch and boat thieves come along and steal his his little boat and he and his ranch hands hustle to build a boat to go chase them down and it's the middle of winter the um the the river the little missouri is chock full of ice um and he, they they jump in the boat but then he runs back to the house and he grabs anna karenina and while they're chasing down these boat thieves that they eventually catch he reads tolstoy so you know, <laughs> I, I love this idea of you know somebody who's living life and engaging at all these multiple levels um, and it's exciting for me and i think we can still imagine ourselves having kind of heroic uh, lives when we, when we read about somebody doing stuff like that so hopefully um, we catch a little of that spirit and energy mm, i love that What lessons would you hope that President-elect Biden might take from Teddy Roosevelt? Well, you know, um, by the end of Roosevelt's political career, when he comes back and he runs as a bull moose candidate, he's, he has a platform that would have made Bernie blush. It's so far left, you know, it's, and it anticipates so many of the changes and some of the, so many of the policies that his distant cousin FDR is going to put in place 20 years later. Um, but in the end, though his progressive impulse was, you know, he kept moving leftward, but he also had a really good common touch, and he also believed in kind of a middle path. He, he thought of it as walking along a ridge, a ridge line. And on the one hand, were what he called the elite criminal class. Um, he he really didn't like success for success' sake, and and you know that comes out in his attacks on the trusts, on the railroads, on the you know he was called a traitor to his class. On the other side, he didn't like the dogmatic, the um, those who just put forward such idealistic platforms and and ideas that had no chance of practically succeeding. So I would say that that to me, you know, as I get older, maybe I'm, maybe my radical is is mellowing out a little bit, but it's walking that path and being able to um, abhor, you know, the the elite criminal class, but also not be suckered into the the other side or not let the other side, the dogmatically, in this case, you know, we would probably compare it with the the most woke voices, right? So I think Biden's going to be good at walking that middle path, and that's exciting to me. And the other thing that Roosevelt was great at was following these things that he was passionate about without looking at the polls. I mean, he part of his appeal was just saying this, you know, conservation is the classic example. He, he led the public. Um, it didn't lead him. He didn't follow their ideas or their um, you know, their opinions. He, he said, this is my vision, and others follow. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thank you, Willa, for thinking of calling. Dave 
David Gessner is the author of Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. We have a link to the book on our website, outtherepodcast.com. This interview was edited by Anne-Margaret Warner. Before you go, I want to remind you that we are launching a new series on Tuesday. It's called the Tuesday Spotlight, and it explores what outdoorsy really means through conversations with people and organizations who are engaging with the outdoors in thought-provoking ways. The Tuesday Spotlight is a little bit different from other things we do on the show. It's not an audio segment. Instead, it will be available in print on our blog and social media. If you're not already following us on social, now would be a great time to do so, so you don't miss out. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Out There Podcast. A big thank you to all of our patrons, including Jerry Marlene, Doug Frick, Mike Lutters, and Deb and Vince Garcia. Patrons are listeners who make monthly contributions to support Out There. These contributions are vital to the show. We could not be producing the stories we produce without your support. So, thank you. If you're not yet a patron, but you're interested in becoming one, head over to patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash outtherepodcast. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors, and it lets you make contributions in any amount, even if it's just a dollar or two a month. And rest assured, your gifts go directly toward paying for the stories you hear on the show. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Our interns are Kara Schaefer and Margaret Warner and Stephanie Maltrich. Our ambassadors are Ashley White, Tiffany Duong, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Please be safe out there. We'll see you next week. <laughs>